0: gathered in love and service for justice and peace. I didn't mean to pick up Elizabeth McCracken's memoir entitled, An Exact Replica of a Figment of My Imagination. Actually, I was reaching for a different book on the shelf when my hand strayed. But once I did, I opened it almost absent-mindedly, and then I couldn't put it down. In fact, I stood in the library reading it, weeping, stood for I don't know how long as other people came and went from the stacks around me, stood even after I had read the last words as the tears dried on my cheeks and felt the full catastrophe of Elizabeth McCracken's loss and the sheer joy at her death-defying life. So I want to share with you today some of her story in her words because it is so beautiful, so deep, and so true, and so utterly hopeful and helpful. There is so much in here to help us help the grieving and to help ourselves in grief. On this day when we remember loved ones who have gone before us, here is a directive for living with grief and embracing life even, and perhaps especially, in the face of death. Elizabeth McCracken writes, A child dies in this story, a baby. A baby is stillborn. You don't have to tell me how sad that is. It happened to me and my husband, our baby, a son. A baby is born, too, that is to say, a healthy baby, our second child. The first child died on April twenty seventh, 2006, in France. The second baby, a biological fact lying across my lap, asleep at this very moment as I type one-handed, was born one year and five days later in Saratoga Springs, New York. Not a miracle, I insist on it a nice everyday baby, snoring now, the best possible thing, dreamt of, fretted over, even prayed for. We ourselves didn't pray. Our religion is worry, we performed decades of it. But some of our friends did, and the mothers of friends and nuns on two continents are nuns-in-law. Such a beautiful, funny-looking, longed-for baby, exactly who we were waiting for. Every day as I love this baby on my lap, I think of my other baby. Poor older brother, poor missing one. I see the infant before me, the glory of the soles of his feet, the lips fattened and glossy with nursing, the nose whose future Edward and I try to predict daily. The love for the first magnifies the love for the second, and vice versa. In the hospital in Bordeaux, one of the midwives asked us a question in French. Most of the calamity, that word calamity, I can't come up with a better one. Most of the calamity happened in French, which Edward and I spoke only passably, used to. My ability to speak French is gone, removed by the blunt force trauma of those days. I've retained only occasional drifting words. The midwife asked, did we want to speak to, excusez-moi, une femme religieuse, the midwife clarified, a religious woman. Ah, here's what she said, voulez-vous parler à un non? Which means, would you like to speak to a nun?" But Edward heard, voulez-vous parler à un nonne? which means, would you like to speak to a dwarf? When he told this to his friend Claudia, Edward told her, actually, I thought I'd really like to speak to a dwarf right about then. I thought it might cheer me up. We theorized that every French hospital kept a supply of dwarfs for the worst off patients and their families, the dwarfs of grief. In the days afterward, I told this story to friends over the phone. I phoned to say, to say, I don't know, I didn't want to disappear into France and grief. I called on our cell phones from sidewalk cafes in the woundingly lovely French spring. Everything hurt. We hoarded carafe after carafe of rosé, and I told my friends about the dwarfs of grief, and I listened to their loud, shocked, relieved laughter. I felt a strange responsibility to sound as though I were not going mad from grief. Maybe I managed it. At that moment, I felt so ruined by life that I couldn't imagine it ever getting worse, which just shows that my sense of humor was slightly more durable than my imagination. Where are they when we need them, the dwarfs of grief, we said to each other when things were really bad. Which is to say, I want it, the impossible lighter side. I want to acknowledge that life goes on, but that death goes on, too. Your friends may say time heals all wounds. No, it doesn't. But eventually you will feel better. You'll be yourself again. Your child will still be dead. The frivolous parts of your personality, more stubborn than you'd imagine, will grow up through the cracks in your soul. I loved being pregnant. After the baby died, I told Edward over and over that I didn't want to forget any of it. The happiness was real, real as the baby himself. It would be terrible, unforgivable to forget it. I would have done the whole thing over again, even knowing how it would end. When I was a teenager in Boston, a man on the subway handed me a card printed with tiny pictures of hands, spelling out the alphabet in sign language. I am deaf, said the card. You were supposed to give the man some money in exchange. I have thought of that card ever since, during difficult times, mine or someone else's. Surely when tragedy has struck you dumb, you should be given a stack of cards that explains it for you. My first child was stillborn. I want people to know, but I don't want to say it aloud. People don't like to hear it, but I think they might not mind reading it on a card. My friend Anne sent out an email to people who didn't know. I got the most beautiful condolence notes in response. "I don't know what to say," people wrote. Or, "Words fail." What amazed me about all the notes I got was how people did know what to say, how words didn't fail. Even the words "words fail" comforted me. Before the baby died, I'd thought condolence notes were simply small bits of old-fashioned etiquette, important but universally acknowledged as inadequate gestures. Now they felt like oxygen, and only now do I fully understand why. To know that other people were sad made the baby realer. Some people apologized for sending sympathy by email, some overnighted notes. It made no difference to me. I read them and reread them. They made me cry, which helped. They moved me. That is to say, they felt physical. They budged me from the sodden, self disintegrating lump I otherwise was. As I was going mad from grief, The worst of it was that sometimes I believed I was making it all up. Here was some proof that I wasn't. One writer was so eloquent, it inspired in me the only moment of true denial I remember from that terrible time. I thought, I'll save this and show it to my son when he's older. It will really mean something to him. When I was pregnant the second time, I was invited to give a reading at an afternoon reception. I sat and chatted with the woman who donated the money for the program, just small talk, and she asked me how my pregnancy was going. Then she said, I was so sorry when I heard about your first child. My first child was stillborn, too. My heart kicked on like a furnace. Suddenly, tears were pouring down my face. Oh no, said the woman, I didn't mean for that to happen. I laughed and tried to explain myself, even though now it's hard to find the words. What came over me was gratitude and an entirely inappropriate love. I didn't know this woman, but I loved her. It's a sort of kinship, is all I can say, as though there is a family tree of grief. On this branch, the lost children, on this, the suicided parents, here the beloved mentally ill siblings. When something terrible happens, you discover all of a sudden that you have a new set of relatives, people with whom you can speak in the shorthand of cousins. A year and three days after the morning I checked out of the hospital in France. I stood on the porch and smiled. It was a lovely spring day. Then we walked to the hospital in Saratoga Springs so I could be induced. At 7.36 that evening, the doctor placed a toasty, warm, squalling, wet baby on my chest, and Edward and I were laughing and laughing and laughing. He was actual, an actual baby, pulled from the dream of my body into the shocking wakefulness of earthly life. That night, Edward went home to get some sleep. The baby was in his plastic bassinet, swaddled into a neat and uncanny little package. I could only see his head in its mint green cap. Sometime around 2 a.m., I told the baby the story of his older brother. I really did. He was a little, little baby, and I told him the story out loud, not knowing when we might tell him again. I wanted him to know How sad we were that he'd never known his older brother and how glad we were to see him. My spiritual companions, life is always life and death. When those we love are grieving, may we be the dwarfs of grief there when we're needed. Even as words fail, love breaks through. And when we grieve, may we remember that we are never truly alone. We are members of the great company of the bereaved. The psalmist said, weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. May we be there for one another in the morning. Amen.